And my guess is that in your home, like in our home, you have uh, uh, family rules in the house or house rules, things that are in place that help your family to uh, to function well together. Things like uh, don't bite your sister or don't don't tattle or, uh, you know, always hug it out or whatever the case might be. Um, I break our family rules all the time, but we have, you know, things in our home that we expect of one another, uh, not just because not because we're legalists and we say you have to be this way, but there are expectations that we have for one another in our homes uh, because it helps the the home to to function, but it helps our family to grow closer. It helps us to, to be a family the way that we ought to be a family. There are things that we do just because we know that they are right to do and they're right to do because they help our family to be what God desires our family to be. In our text today, in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, We're going to see not necessarily some family rules, but certainly some family sort of boundaries, encouragements, exhortations for the family of faith. And particularly as they relate to the family of faith, we call the church, the local church, as we endure suffering and even opposition from the world, in the world, for our faith. There are things that God has called us to do as brothers and sisters who are are committed, who have committed our lives together here in the context of the local church. Things that we do with each other and for each other to help one another endure suffering well. We see in this text that God has uniquely commanded and even gifted the church to help one another endure suffering together as a family as we pray, love, care, and serve one another. Turning our attention to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, I'll ask you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Peter continues in his letter writing this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, if you were to just come across these verses, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, as you're just kind of skimming through, or you just to read this paragraph sort of outside of the context of the, the rest of, the, uh, of Peter's letter here, you, you might read it as a fairly encouraging thing. Say, yeah, that, of course, that, those are all the things that, that, that churches are supposed to do. But I would remind us of the surrounding context in which Peter gives these instructions. We saw last week in 1 Peter uh, 3, verse, uh, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 6, the importance of enduring suffering with grace in the world, that, that we uh, endure suffering and opposition for our faith as Christians in the world with unbelievers, with an attitude of gentleness and, and grace. Peter's going to follow up what we just read this morning, and and we'll look at this next week in verse 12, about the importance for the church to not be surprised when suffering comes. But sandwiched in between suffering in the world with gentleness and grace and not being surprised about suffering, we have these instructions for how the church is to act toward one another. These instructions for how the church is to act toward one another are, are not there by accident. Uh, this isn't Peter sort of losing his train of thought and adding something else. Rather, what he's doing is he's giving instruction for the church about how to encourage one another as a family of faith while they endure suffering from the world. You follow? 
These are the things that the church must do, is commanded to do, encouraged by God to do, to help one another to suffer well, to endure opposition for our faith. And so we see in this text that Christians can endure suffering, ought to endure suffering with the church, alongside their brothers and sisters, together as they first of all pray in verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. What does he mean by that? Well, we understand that at Christ's death and resurrection, the end of all things, the end of time has begun. The last days begins with Christ's resurrection from the dead and his subsequent ascension into heaven. With Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, we now are living in the last days. We've been living in the last days, friends, for the last 2,000 years, okay? An aspect of these final days, of these last days, will be the suffering of believers for the name of Jesus. Even Jesus warns his disciples about this, prepares them for this. In Matthew 24, verses 9 and following, he says this, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Just as a side note, there are many Christians, especially since the uh, early 20th century, 1900s or so, uh, with the the advent of a certain understanding of how the end times would occur, uh, Christians who have been uh, obsessed with end times and end times prophecy. Now, let me say this. It's not bad to understand and to read, uh, to to look for the coming of the king. Uh, But let me say it is bad if you are obsessing over prophecy and not proclaiming the gospel in the nations. Friends, do you want to know when the end will come? The end will come when God says the end will come. When the gospel has been proclaimed in all the nations. So if you are tempted to post on Facebook about how terrified you are about all the things happening in the world and Jesus is coming soon, let me, let me encourage you not to post about how scared you are and instead get out and share the gospel. If you want Christ to come, share the gospel. That's what Jesus says. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So don't worry about Christ coming again. Don't worry about tribulation until all of the world has heard the gospel. Friends, in these last days, getting back to the point at hand, suffering, opposition for our faith is to be expected in these end times. We should expect it. Jesus has said to. But that's okay, There's no need to fear. There's no need to lose your mind. Those whom God has blessed with a full head of hair. There's no need to pull your hair out over consternation of the end times. Instead, since there is no surprise in our suffering, since we know we'll receive opposition for our faith, the Christian who expects it should endure with thoughtful and disciplined prayer, Peter says. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There are two imperatives, there are two commands in this verse uh, that benefit our prayer. That we are to be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Have your wits about you, Peter says. And Peter uses the same idea of being self-controlled, of being sober-minded in several places in his letter. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 8. In all of those places to refer to being sober-minded with regard to preparation for our holy conduct. There in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. In chapter 4, verse 7, here where we uh, uh, see his encouragement again to be sober-minded, he uses it to encourage us for prayer in the end times. Again, he commands us in chapter 5, verse 8, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, uh, for preparedness uh, in resisting the, the wiles and the schemes of Satan. 
We need to have our wits about us as Christians. We need to think soberly. We need to think clearly about the world in which we live. We need to not be wrapped up in, 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 uh, in these, these propositions of, of a chaotic future and terrible things around us. We need to know that God is king, that Christ is on his throne, that all things are under his sovereign rule and reign. And we need to relax in that and get busy with sharing the gospel. Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, though. Think clearly, think soberly about the world in which you are so that your prayer will be helped. Self-control and sober-mindedness in chaotic and confusing times is the best tool we have for enduring suffering together as a church. We're to think clearly, think soberly about the world around us, about the things that are happening so that we can pray together better. Have you ever thought about that? That thinking clearly that not being out of your mind with terror and fear about things actually helps you pray better? When I was a kid, and I'm sure this is the case for all of you as well, when we were in elementary school, even all the way up through high school, we had fire drills, right, during the day. We love fire drills because that means you get out of work for like 15 minutes in class. But during fire drills, the, the fire alarm goes off and the teachers get all the kids in a nice straight line and you all march out the door to your designated place in the field or out, you know, beyond the, the sort of radius of danger or whatever it is. And you stay orderly, you stay, you stay together, you do what the teacher tells you. Often teachers are getting on you, stay calm, right? No talking, just stay focused. Let's get through this. The, the teachers don't do that. They don't instruct their students to go through the fire drill with calmness and clear-headedness just for the fun of it or because they want to get through. They do it because it's going to help in a time of emergency. The reason you go through fire drills with sobriety and, 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 and clear-headed thinking with discipline in the way that you do it is so that when, it, when there actually is a fire, everybody gets out safely uh, with, to the place that they're supposed to be in the way that they're supposed to get there. The same is true for prayer. Prayer is an indispensable tool in the life of the Christian. Prayer is our direct line of communication to the sovereign God who controls all things and who knows our troubles. Yet if our minds are clouded with worry and fear and frantic thoughts all the time, how can we ever expect to communicate clearly to God or to hear from him clearly or to pray well for others who need it? So, friend, in these last days, practice for sober, prayerful suffering. By making sober-minded prayer a daily habit today. Pray with a clear mind today that when suffering, when opposition really does come, you can pray all the more clearly on that day. This we do with the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we know and love and, and are committed to as members here, especially of First West. The truth of the matter is this, friends. If you're not in the habit of praying regularly now when you're not suffering, you will likely not pray much or very well when you are suffering. Likewise, the character of your prayer now will indicate the character of your prayer when you do suffer. So think about your prayer life right now. Is your prayer life right now, filled with requests for God to heal your sicknesses and provide for your daily living, but with little attention to the salvation of the lost and for boldness to proclaim Christ and for courage to live publicly for Jesus? Is all of your prayer happening two to three minutes before you eat a meal or, or for 30 seconds at the end of the day? Or are you praying regularly throughout the day for big things? Are you praying big prayers to God? If your prayers are filled with these what I look, listen, these are, it's not bad. 
to pray for healing, to pray for those that are having surgery, to pray for those that are, uh, that, that are sick. It's good to pray for them. We do well to pray for them. But friends, let our prayers not stop there. Because we live in a country that has great medical care, right? So you, somebody who's going in for surgery, right? They're, they're usually going under somebody who has, who has uh, learned a lot about how to do surgery successfully, who's practiced it much. They're probably in pretty good hands. Your ingrown toenail is going to be okay, right? The, the flu that you have now will most likely pass. So pray for those things, but don't obsess about things, those things. There are far more important, far more urgent things that we need to bring before God today. There are lost people dying and spending an eternity in hell today because they've not heard the gospel of Jesus and how to be saved. It's far more important for us to pray for them, for their salvation, for our boldness and courage to share the gospel with them than it is for our stub toe, okay? If your prayers are small now, then in crisis, your prayers will be small also. If your prayers now are only for God to meet my needs immediately, then when suffering comes, your prayers will almost always be a frantic cry to God for deliverance and very rarely for vision to see his glory and to do his will, even in the midst of suffering. So let us think clearly about the world around us. Let us have our priorities set rightly. Let us pray in accordance with our priorities so that when suffering does come, if God does so will that we receive opposition for our, for our faith, that we can pray well together oftentimes in crisis it seems like the world's falling down around us we echo christ's prayer in the garden right father take this cup from me god if there's any way for us to not go through this disaster just take it away give a way of deliverance but very rarely in times of crisis do we have enough self-control and sobriety of spirit to confess that God's purposes are better than our circumstances. And in communication to God, we often pray, Lord, take this cup from me, but we don't get to the better part of Christ's prayer. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Let us in suffering have that kind of prayer together as a church. Not our will, Father, but yours be done. The church helps one another suffer well as we soberly and, 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 and uh, in a self-controlled way pray for and with one another. But secondly, we suffer well together as a church when we love each other. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We see first in, the, in this verse the importance of love in the church. Peter says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another. Above all, that gives a sense of the, the great importance of love among the body, among brothers and sisters who are committed together in Christ. Mutual love and genuine affection among the members of the local church, especially as they suffer, especially when they suffer for their faith, is ever so critical for the life of the body. When the church finds itself at odds with the world, even in the crosshairs of the snipers of an unchristian culture, how important is it to have brothers and sisters who will care for one another and bind up one another's wounds in those times of suffering? We need like-minded believers to lift us up when we've been cast down. We need brothers and sisters who love us to spur us on when we are lethargic and apathetic and to carry us spiritually and emotionally when we can't take another step. Love in the church for one another is of utmost importance. And because of this, it should be ongoing. Peter says, keep loving one another. The, the implication here is that the church has been loving one another, is loving one another, and will continue to love one another. This emphasis on brotherly love should not be lost on us in First Peter. We've already hit on it several times in his letter as we've been working through it. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
In chapter 2, verse 17, we saw Peter say, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says there again, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Here in verse chapter 4, verse 8, he says again, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And later in chapter 5, verse 14, we're going to see him encourage the church to greet one another with the kiss of love. These five references, even commands, exhortations to love the brotherhood of Christians, marks perhaps the second strongest theme in the book of 1 Peter, second only to suffering and suffering well for the gospel. The number of references and reminders to the importance of brotherly love in this short span of text. 1 Peter is really only maybe four, three and a half, four pages in our Bible. The number of references in 1 Peter is such that there's one reference to brotherly love for every chapter in his letter. There's literally uh, uh, almost no other theme that that is more important to us in this letter. We uh, love for the brotherhood is incredibly important. But also we see in this verse that Christian love is not just important. It's also redemptive. Christian love is redemptive. Peter goes on to say love covers a multitude of sins. Here he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 where the writer of Proverbs says hatred stirs up strife but love conquers all offenses. James, in his letter to the church, in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, writes this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, him, brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins, that love in this way is redemptive? Well, Peter's not arguing here that love has the power to grant other believers or even ourselves the forgiveness of sins. Peter is not saying that church, as you love one another, you're saving each other. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he is getting at is that brotherly love, this kind of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, endures the shortcomings and the failures of other believers. We patiently endure the failings of our brothers and sisters. It allows us to look past their sins and to forgive their offenses against us. That's what brotherly love does. An earnest love, an eager love in the church does not hold the sins of other Christians over their heads. But at the same time, it doesn't ignore their sin altogether. Instead, Christian love moves us to care about one another's holiness and Christ-likeness by graciously recognizing our sins and challenges in this life and humbly and lovingly helping one another to pursue Jesus more faithfully. That's what brotherly love looks like. It looks like when you see someone struggling in their life, you say, brother, sister, I see the struggle in your life. It's the things that you've been doing, the way that you've been acting. It's inconsistent with what you say about Jesus, that he's Lord. And, 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 and I want to help you begin to repent of that. Number one, the way you're living is not helpful. It's breaking these relationships. It's hurting these people. It's hurting your own spiritual growth this way. Let me help you walk in repentance. That's what brotherly love looks like. Love in the church is not seeing someone else's faults and failures and saying, yeah, you know, I'm falling too. And then just walking away from it. That's not loving. James says brotherly love is going after someone who's walking in sin and bringing them back to repentance. Friends, it's a good thing when we have brothers and sisters in the church that are willing to go after us when we walk away from the Lord. There's something redemptive in that, bringing us back to our faithfulness and walk with Christ. Love in this sense, loving in a redemptive way uh, among the brothers and sisters in the church is not possible if we don't first know the love that God has shown to us in Christ. 
You can't love in a redemptive way other people unless you have received God's redemptive love through faith in Christ. You can't love other people in a godly way until you've, you've understood and accepted the love of God shown to you in Christ's death on the cross in your place and in his resurrection. In 1 John, John's first letter to the church in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is redemptive. God goes after sinners to bring them back. We as believers who have been brought back by God then go after those other brothers and sisters that we know that are struggling to help them come back to walk in faithfulness to Christ. Friend, have you this morning received this grand display of God's love? Have you turned from your own sin? Have you given Jesus full reign of your life? Have you seen that God, in order to demonstrate how he loves you, sent his son to die on the cross in your place? Have you accepted that love? Have you trusted Jesus and received Christ as Lord, made him savior and king of your life? If not, you haven't tasted God's love yet. But I would invite you today... Trust Christ today. Receive the love of God in Christ for the first time today. Know that you have been forgiven of your sins uh, as you trust in Jesus and walk in the confidence and and assurance that that brings. Christians, love that helps us endure suffering is a love that seeks the closest walk with Christ for self and others. Let me say that again. Love that helps us endure suffering is a love that seeks the closest walk with Christ for yourself and for others. This is a kind of love that extends grace and forgiveness and support to a struggling brother or sister. It's a love for the truth that receives conviction and spiritual help when it is given. Real love, as I think most of you know, gets messy. Real love is dirty business. I personally hate being dirty. Ask my wife. I'm obsessive about this. I don't like having grease on my hands. Maybe that makes me less of a man. I don't know. But sometimes I have to get grease under my fingernails to get work done uh, on the car or around the house. Even playing with the girls. Sometimes you got to get out in the mud and play with the girls. I hate being dirty. Did I say that already? So playing in the mud is a difficult thing for me to do. But out of love for my daughters, I get in the mud and play in the mud. Out of a need to get work done around the house or on the car, I get my hands dirty. Christian, if we're going to be obedient to do what God has put the church together to do, We cannot be hesitant or afraid to get down into the mess of our brothers and sisters' sinful lives to love them well and to be loved by them. If all of our relationships in the church are always neat and tidy and clean, there's a good chance we really don't love each other very much. Look to the person to your left. Look to the person to your right. Look at yourself. You're all sinners, okay? None of you is perfect. Even those of you who are faithfully trusting and walking with Christ, you got junk in your life. You got baggage. You have stuff that is pulling you away from your walk with Christ. You need brothers and sisters to help you to do that. And in order for them to help you follow Christ, you're going to have to open up about some of the mess of your life. And you're going to have to be comfortable and, and even vulnerable to let them know about some of the mess in your life. Friends, you've got to be willing to get messy with those people whose lives are not perfect. We don't have it all put together, but we can't expect to suffer well for our faith if we're constantly holding expectations of perfection over one another's heads when we know that we can't do it. 
Instead, let us get messy with each other. Let us love one another with grease under our fingernails so as to say, I love you enough to not let you do that, to go that direction, to do that thing so that you can look more like Christ. I'm going to get messy in this life to help you suffer better for the gospel, to endure opposition for Christ in a more faithful way. Peter commands the church to pray for one another, to love one another. In verse 9, he commands us to care for one another. There he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter commends here the show of hospitality among the church as this third means of enduring suffering together, to show hospitality to one another. That word hospitality itself normally has in mind the, uh, the, the, the act of opening your home to someone, to let them stay with you for a while. It would have been a common practice for uh, members of the early church to open their homes to traveling missionaries, to uh, take care of their needs for the time that they're in a particular city, sharing the gospel, planting churches. But this idea of hospitality can, can be applied even in a, a broader way uh, to how we show hospitality today uh, in the 21st century. A Christian hospitality is not simply opening your home for someone else when they have need. But, but more broadly, Christian hospitality is about, uh, uh, is about being willing to lend assistance to other people who are in need out of uh, our own resources. This can include opening your home to those who are traveling, but it can also uh, extend to offering financial assistance to a brother or sister who has trouble. Maybe offering a hot meal to someone who is having a hard time getting food on their table. Maybe lending the use of a, a vehicle to a brother or sister that needs help getting somewhere. Offering to care for another brother or sister's children in a time of crisis or great need. Hospitality has almost endless applications. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As the church is to exercise this kind of generous, sacrificial, needs-meeting ministry without murmuring, without complaining, without grumbling about the size of the need that people have or the constancy of their need. Uh, that sort of grumbling, that sort of murmuring is unacceptable. That sort of gossip, if you will, about who, who has needs and how great their needs are, that's not acceptable in the church. But as each one has received the bounty of God's grace by faith in Christ, so also are we to extend grace and kindness to those who are in need with the same sort of godly grace and patience that God has shown to us. If God only showed care to our souls uh, for what we stood to offer him, right, we never would have received redemption in the first place. So churches, you extend generosity and care for those in the body. Do it without grumbling. Do it generously. Do it sacrificially. Do it for their good and for the glory of God in what you do. So when you see a need in the church, Christian, you who are a member of First Baptist West Albuquerque, don't merely pray for that person's need, but also look to your own resources to see how God has blessed you to meet that need. Is there a single mom in our church that needs child care on the weekend so that she can have some time by herself to relax, rejuvenate, take a breath from life? Is there an elderly couple that needs help around their house, uh, getting some things done? Is there a young family maybe who, who just needs the uh, assistance of an older couple to come alongside and to help them to walk through life, to care for them in that way? Friends, look to the needs that are among us and seek to meet the needs that we have in the church out of our own resources. Hospitality and mercy in this way have always been a hallmark of God's people. Not because we are hospitable and merciful on our own, but because we know God's generosity and mercy in his sending our Savior, Jesus. In that act, we have seen what perfect hospitality and mercy look like. 
God in Christ has opened the floodgates of his love to meet our very desperate need for rescue from sin. And we likewise, as followers of Jesus, are commanded by God to extend similar generous care to others. So look around you today and in the weeks that come to the brothers and sisters that are in our church. As we love one another and share our struggles, let us also seek to care for one another in physical, tangible, generous ways. Peter says the church suffers well together when they pray, when they love, when they care finally as they serve together in verses 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here, like Paul does in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, notes that each believer, every Christian who has trusted Christ, has received at least one gift from the Holy Spirit to be used for serving the body. We've often talked about spiritual gifts in the church. We're not going to list all of the possible spiritual gifts. For some uh, examples of those, you can look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, if you'd like to do that. But here, Peter doesn't give a list of gifts. Rather, he gives two categories of gifts that God gives to the church. The first category is that of speaking gifts. This is, uh, is those, uh, so uh, everyone has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. The speaking gifts, as we know from other places in Scripture, are things like teaching, preaching, uh, giving wisdom, knowledge, uh, prophecy, uh, the gifts of various tongues and interpretations of those tongues, distinguishing between spirits, evangelism, exhortation. These are the speaking gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit that relate to our verbal uh, declaration or proclamation of a thing. The speaking gifts, Peter says, are to be exercised in a particularly godly way. That is, as one who speaks oracles of God, as one who speaks the words of God. So any words spoken by someone who's gifted to teach or to preach, uh, the apostles, evangelists, as Paul uh, speaks about in Philippians 4, those who uh, have the gift of exhortation and encouragement should give those words, teach those words, deliver those words as those that are spoken by God himself. On the one hand, this does not mean that those who have received speaking gifts bear with them the authority of God in all that they speak. I once knew a person in cemetery, in cemetery, (laughs) seminary, who thought they had the gift of prophecy. They didn't have the gift of prophecy. They just had the gift of being a jerk. Okay. So when you speak, if you feel that God has given you a speaking gift, if you discern that you, 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 you give that gift, you exercise that gift in a godly way, not in a way, in a way that seeks to build other people up, not to bring other people down. So on the one hand, those who have speaking gifts, uh, this does not mean that every, so every time I say anything or teach anything in a class, I, I don't have uh, authority as, as uh, someone inspired by the Holy Spirit writing scripture has authority. My authority is bound by the authority of Scripture, okay? So when I speak, when I preach, I try to preach only what's in the Bible and not anything other than that. When we teach in our Sunday school classes, the same thing. When we give exhortation or encouragement to other people in the church, we do that in the same way. We, we exhort, we encourage according to the Word of God. So this text does intend that those who exercise their speaking gifts should do so with integrity as concerns the words of God and consistently with the Word of God. 
And Peter has already commented on the miraculous uh, efficacy of the word of God in his letter. God's word is effective and it is miraculous. In chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, we read this. You have been born again, Peter says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, which remains forever. So since it is the word of God through the gospel that has effected new life in the heart of the believer, the one who trusts Jesus, then it follows that the previously spoken and written word of God should be the thing that those with speaking gifts exercise their speaking. Does that make sense? Teaching and preaching should be centered on the written word of God. That we see encouraged to us in 2 Timothy 4. Evangelists are to proclaim... The works of God in redemption as accord with the scriptures. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where Paul says that Christ died according to the scriptures, was raised according to the scriptures. In Acts 2 and in Acts 7, where Peter and Stephen give their relative uh, uh, sermons to, uh, to those that are listening. They are recounting all that God has done in scripture. All words that come from those who say they are exercising gifts of the Spirit in a speaking sense should be tested against the Scriptures for consistency with what God has already said. So there are speaking gifts in the church that are also serving gifts. These are things like the gift of mercy, healing, faith, working of miracles, generosity, contribution, gifts of leading in the church. As the serving gifts are given by God, they're exercised, Peter says, is to be in the strength of God, in the strength of the one who has given the gift. There are some of these serving works, things like miracles and healing, that can only be done in the strength and power of God. Friend, you can't heal anybody on your own, right? You can't perform miracles on your own. And might I also say, we ought not to expect to do those things, but rather, if God so moves through us to do them, we praise him for it. Other of these uh, serving gifts, however, can be synthesized. They can be faked in human strength. Peter's in, so things like mercy, uh, even faith, we can fake faith. We can fake leading. We can do these things in our own power, but not in the strength of God. Peter's injunction, his, his command here to exercise these gifts in the power of God serves for the church as a reminder that the gifts may be imitated but cannot, in the strength of man, match the gifts when they're exercised in the power of God. Simultaneously, the serving gifts, by their very nature, require physical, emotional, even spiritual strength to complete. It's hard to be merciful. It takes work to exercise faith deeply and regularly over time. It's hard to lead in God's church. These things take real physical, emotional, spiritual strength, strength that only God can provide to the one who is exercising that gift. These acts of service are taxing. They sap the believer of our ability to continue in serving if God is not the source of strength and endurance in their exercise. So, friend, if God has gifted you with a serving gift, do it as God gives you strength to do it. Not looking for the praise of man, not looking for your own glory or your own recognition or reputation. You do it because God has called you to do it, and you do it because God has given you strength to do it. So, friends, irrespective of the kind of gift that you have received, if you're a follower of Christ... As these gifts are given by the Spirit of God, they should likewise be exercised in the strength and the power that the Spirit of God supplies. This means for us that the gifts are given as a blessing of God to be used to bless others in the name and in the power of God so that God will ultimately receive all of the glory as both the giver of the, of the gift and the one who affects the working of the gifts. 
God the Father receives glory through Jesus Christ, Peter says, because it is the risen Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit and along with him the gifts that are given to believers. As the gifts of the Spirit are exercised in our life among one another, as we serve one another with the gifts that we have, God the Father receives glory through the reigning and risen Jesus, who himself has all authority to send the Spirit with the gifts to the believer. What does this mean for us today? Well, irrespective of how God has gifted you to serve, brother or sister, be sure to use your gift to serve the church in a way that builds her up and glorifies God through submitting your gift to the lordship of Christ. God does not give you a gift to use for your own benefit. He gives you a gift to use to serve others. Just as Peter says, as each one has received a gift, use it to make yourself better. Use it to show yourself off in the community. Use it to gain a place or office of uh, influence where you are. No, he says use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. This week, I would encourage you, Christian, to take time to discern how God has gifted you. Take some time this week. Ask God in prayer for clarity about your gifts. God, what, what have you called and gifted me to do specifically? Ask other trusted believers that you know how they discern how God has gifted you. Ask your friends, what do you see in my life? How do you think God has gifted me? This is what I think, but I'm not sure. I'm looking for other counsel here. I don't want to be the, the only judge of what God has done in my life. I want other people who observe me to, to speak into that as well. Determine in that process, friend, if God has gifted you with a speaking gift or a serving gift. What category that falls into. And then take to heart the words of the passage uh, as you exercise them. The, the words that we've read here. Speaking as those speaking words of God. Consistently with the word of God. Serving as in the strength and the power that God supplies. There are things that you cannot do uh, as a believer if God has not gifted you to do them. Right? You can try real hard, but you're going to fall flat on your face. Or at least at the, end of, at the end of the day, at some point, all of your life will show the fruit of whether you've been doing things for God and in his strength or not. Whether you've been faking it or trying to do something else. The Christian who tries to exercise a gift that God has not actually given to them or to exercise a gift apart from the power and the work of God in their life is a lot like a football player who can't throw a football trying to be an NFL quarterback. Tim Tebow. <clears throat> Oh, man, some Tebow fans in here. I look at that and say, brother, you've got so many gifts. So many gifts, that uh, physical gifts, physical talents and abilities that you can use to benefit the team, but just not in that position. You could be a football player the rest of your life or as long as you want to, just not there because that's not where your gifting is at this time. Christian, don't be like a football player who wants to play quarterback when you can barely get the ball out of your hand, okay? Ask God to, to show you the gifts that he's given to you. Trust that God's wisdom in giving you those gifts is better than, than your own uh, uh, desire to use or to have certain gifts. Understand that none of the gifts give anyone in the church a special place of prominence or priority. All of them are to be used to serve one another. So discern the gift that God has given you. Ask him to show it to you. And then, and then faithfully execute, exercise those gifts for this, to, to serve the church in a way that honors and glorifies God. <clears throat> While God intends and even uses suffering, 
and opposition for our faith in this life. He uses those things to galvanize our faith, to galvanize our commitment to Jesus. He has also given us a fantastic tool to help us in our suffering. He's given us the church. This motley crew of forgiven sinners following Jesus has been made by Christ to be a family who prays together, who loves one another sincerely and redemptively, who care for the needs of our brothers and sisters with generosity and who serve each other as God has empowered and strengthened us to do so. Church, I pray that we at First West would see and know what a wonderful gift our family of faith is to us. And that we would work hard to be for one another what God through Peter has commanded us to be. My guess is that at least one of these four characteristics from God's word this morning, prayer, care, love, service, one of these things is is an area in your life where you need encouragement. It's a a thing that, that you have been called to do in the church that maybe you've not been doing very well. Maybe it's something you've neglected and, and today you need to embrace again that, that thing. Prayer, care, love, service, maybe all four. You need to embrace those things again for God's glory and working those things in the life of the church. So friend, today, whatever it is that God is placing on your heart, whatever these four things that he's saying, brother, sister, son, daughter, right? This part of your life is not matching my word yet. Whatever part of that it is that God is pressing on your heart today, don't neglect the way that God is leading. Instead, today, respond to God's word by taking joy in obeying his leading. Repent of the things you need to repent of. Right? Recommit to things that you need to recommit to. Do, do and follow in obedience, whatever it is God's calling you to do, because there's joy in that. And friends, there's, as God calls you to do the things that he's gifted you to do in the church, he will see to it that you are joyful in the exercise of your obedience to him. But I also understand that there are probably you, uh, some of you friends this morning who are not yet Christian. And I'm really glad, I'm overjoyed that you are here with us this morning in worship. We who are followers of Jesus at First West, we want nothing more than for you to become a part of this family of faith that we might pray with and love and care for and serve you as God has called us to do. Know this this morning, friend who is not yet a Christian. God stands ready to adopt you into his family today, this morning, as you turn away from the sin that is in your heart, as you turn in full faith and trust in Jesus, who died on a cross to purchase your forgiveness of sins and who rose from the dead so that you can be united to God today. Friend, you who are not yet a Christian, you're not yet part of the family of God nor a part of this family of faith as a believer. I invite you, I, I plead with you, to receive Christ today in full faith that we might receive you as a brother, as a sister in Christ, and that we might come alongside you to pray, love, care for, and serve you as God has called us to do in a world that is ever-changing, in a strange place where, where we are more and more every day feeling like strangers. Find a home in the church of God as you're adopted in his family through faith in Christ. And church, family, uh, family members of First West, let us stand ready to receive those who give their lives to uh, Christ in faith. Receive them as brothers and sisters and do for them and help them to do the things that Peter has called us to do as we walk in this world uh, as faithful believers in Christ. Let's pray together.